Hey, this is D. Snyder, and you like making great money, right? Well, here's a really cool opportunity I have to share with you, driving with Uber. Uber's that popular smartphone app that connects riders with drivers. I take Uber a bunch, and I love them. And in chatting with the different drivers, as I do when I'm in the cars, some of them have really interesting stories as to why they drive with Uber. Some say they love being their own boss. Others say they earn great money. Actually, they all say they earn great money. And it's easy to start. You just need a car and a license. Driving with Uber is great for anyone who needs flexibility. Parents, this is a really easy way to work around your family's busy schedule. Students, you can make some extra money between classes. Now's the prime time to cash in driving with Uber. You'll thank me for telling you how to get paid every week. Hey, who knows? I could be getting into your car when you drive with Uber. You've got a car and a license, put them both to work for you and start earning serious, life-changing money today. Sign up to Drive with Uber. Visit drivewithuber.com. That's drivewithuber.com. Drivewithuber.com. Let's play. This Twitter thing is still haunting me. Uh, I'm having trouble looking at my Twitter page. Is that what it's called, the Twitter page? Whatever. Uh, and, and, and like, committing. Uh, you know, if, if you didn't listen last week, um, go back and listen. No, I'll tell you quickly. Uh, you know, I do a lot of posting. People say I'm relatively active on Twitter. Uh, and uh, I posted... A tweet that simply said, I love pancakes. The response, the reaction to I love pancakes is disheartening. Disheartening, no, not in, in that it was ignored. Disheartening in how it exploded. How it's become a thing. I love pancakes. More highly retweeted, more, it's gotten more favorites than any other tweet, virtually any tweet I've ever done. I love pancakes. And it's really made me just sort of question, why? Why are we here? Why <laughs> Why are we here? Uh, the question, I love pancakes. No, why, why am I tweeting? If I love pancakes is the be-all and end-all of tweets. Am I that uninteresting? I think it's a bigger, th- and that's another thing that's plaguing me. Is, is, is I, maybe I'm just not that interesting. As I said last week, I'm sure Lady Gaga farts and, and the Twitterverse explodes. So did Lady Gaga, apparently. But, you know, but I tweet 
and people could care less. And I got some people have responded. Yeah, by the way, it's it's uh, at Snyder Comments is the Twitter handle, and at the Snyder's mine. And some people have responded, and they've said, you know, deal. First, someone said, D, twi- Twitter is a, a social thing; it's not about self promotion. And you know, and I and I, you know, I think I covered that on the show, and I said, you know, being in the entertainment industry, of course, we have the social aspect of promotion, but I recognize that it's supposed to not be so self-serving on that level. But on a social level, you like to think that some of the things that I've had to say, and there's been some fairly pithy statements that I've made over time, uh, that they would reverberate more, that people would have more uh, interest in those things, up at least at least equal to I Love Pancakes. You know, if, if some of my more, more profound statements at least were on par with the reaction to I Love Pancakes, I could live with that. But I Love Pancakes just, just tramples to death anything else that I say or come up with. So now I find myself trying to think of something idiotic to say that you will react to. I'm saying, what else can I say I love? Can I say, uh, I, say I love cereal? Maybe I love cereal react. I don't know. It's another breakfast food. Am I compromising my stance on pancakes if I go with cereal? I don't know. Maybe I, 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 I gotta think of something like that. So I'm literally thinking of innocuous things to say. Innocuous, your, that's your word for the week. There you go, kids. Innocuous. Look it up. Um, so there's that. And somebody else said, you know, uh, somebody else said to me that, you know, that they, that people have, well, you know, sort of explained the pancake phenomenon, if you will. But at the same time, it, it's kind of haunting me as I, as I stare blankly at my Twitter page going, what do I write that matters? What do I write that people will care as it scrolls by? You know, do, do, you know and I, I tried to say something important or at least entertaining, and then I'm challenged by I Love Pancakes. My own tweet challenges me to do more. This all said, um, on this week's Snyder Comments, I'm going to uh, have a guest, a friend, a business associate. I use the word friend first because I've, I think I mentioned this before that it is rare that somebody in the business crosses over and genuinely becomes a friend. There's friendships based on business relationships. And then there's... Uh, then, then the next level is where you just are friends for the sake of being friends. It has nothing to do with the business relationship. You no longer have a business relationship, and you still have a friendship. The man's name is Marty Callner. And people are going, who? Oh! Well, Marty, the reason I want Marty on, he's one of those guys that has affected your life, affected my life, affected so many lives with his art, yet he's a behind-the-scenes guy. So people don't necessarily know him or aren't aware of him. You know, when you deal with, he's a director. And when you deal with big film directors, you Spielbergs, you know, you, you get those people, they come out from, from behind the camera, and we come to know and respect the Tarantinos. We know that these are the minds that are creating the art that we are so engrossed in and challenged by and changed by and affected by. But then there's a whole plethora of others, like Marty Callner, who are more behind the scenes, yet they've done so much. 
Now, Marty Colner started his career in, uh, in, in television, but went is one of those guys, a chance taker. In the very early days of HBO, he had the opportunity to join the HBO family and he took a shot when H, I'm talking 1975, when HBO was nothing. He had, a, he gave up a lot to take a chance with what was then at the time people thought, nobody thought HBO was going to work. Probably like podcasts. Okay. When podcasts first started, people said, oh, that'll never happen. And podcasts are exploding. Well, HBO was one of those things people said, pay television, never happened. Yet, it, look what it's become. And Marty's one of the guys who helped make it what it became. Uh, his comedy specials, the comedians of the 70s, that all the ones like Robin Williams and Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock, who, uh, uh, Pee Wee Herman, who became the names that defined generations of comedians marty directed their first comedy specials found them and directed them music specials his 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 early music specials on hbo with diana ross and Cher and fleetwood mac and pat benatar they became award-winning and helped define the live concert event type thing okay and then marty went from there into doing rock music videos. His first rock music video was at the, at the forefront of MTV was we're not going to take it. And from there, he just went on to do the White Snake videos, you know, and the Aerosmith videos, you know, and, and some Scorpions and so pretty much everybody who was somebody, Marty was directing their videos. As a creator, he created Pee Wee's Playhouse. He created Hard Knocks, the sports show. That goes back to his sports background. Uh, you know, that great sports show on HBO. He created that show. He is the premier live concert event director. If you have a huge live concert event, you get Marty Colner. Justin Timberlake at Madison Square Garden, Marty Colner. Garth Brooks for half a million people at Central Park, Marty Colner. The Rolling Stones live in Rio, two million people, Marty Colner directing. Twisted Sisters video, uh, live concert video, but that goes way back. But the point is, this guy I hope that I've mentioned some things that have affected your life, your worldview, the, you know, culturally. These musical, artistic, and, and comedic events have, have affected millions of people. And behind the scenes is this guy, a great guy named Marty Colner. And then he'll tell you about Ready Freddy, which is the bizarrest thing, a survival backpack, which is the, the best one. You know they always have those lists, things you need to have in case of an emergency. Well, Marty had the idea to put it all into one backpack, a two-week supply for two people, uh, everything laid out, planned out, including batteryless radio, batteryless, batteryless, battery, batteryless batteryless uh flashlight a uh, water purification everything ready freddy nothing to do with anything's ever done before came up with the idea and now it's it's probably the biggest money maker ever had so we're going to talk to marty colner uh get into that in just a bit really an interesting guy uh with with important and again what i like about marty is is the story he's going to tell has a lot to place to a lot of things I talk about, about believing in yourself, taking those chances, being a yes man, things I've talked about in other, in other uh, interviews, uh, interviews. Well, interviews, yes, I've talked about interviews, but also in some of my diatribes or my rants or whatever you want to call them, um, other podcasts. And Marty's 
life and career definitely plays to that. So uh, stick around for more Snyder comments. I'll be right back. Hey, this is D. Snyder for DraftKings. Only a few more preseason games to go before the regular season kicks off, and you could start the season by winning $2 million in week one at DraftKings.com. Yeah, you've probably seen the TV commercials. It's true. It's America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. This is the biggest fantasy football contest ever. $10 million in prizes are up for grabs, including $2 million for first place and $1 million for second. One-week fantasy means no season-long commitments it's fantasy football on demand play where you want when you want with the players you want that's how i like it just pick your players pile up the points and pick up your cash that's it you've never experienced football like this every game feels like the playoffs even in week one and every broken tackle or spectacular catch could take you closer to a two million dollar prize this isn't fantasy as usual this is DraftKings. welcome to the big time hurry to draftkings.com now and use promo code snyder that's my last name snyder to play free for a shot at two million dollars in the week one millionaire maker enter snyder that's S-N-I-D-E-R for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. All right, DraftKings number one. DraftKings Ultimate Fantasy Podcast. Hey, it's John Kincaid. Have you checked out the DraftKings Ultimate Fantasy Podcast yet? Some fantasy insights from some of the best insiders from DraftKings. Also, too, we've got the best celebrity guests stopping on by to share their love of fantasy and maybe an insight or two. It's a must-listen every single Thursday at PodcastOne.com. That's PodcastOne.com. Uh, welcome back to Snyder Comments. I want to welcome to the show, you know, I've already set this up, but my friend, first and foremost, my friend, and one of the few friends in the business world that I have, people who have remained through the years, through the decades, through the ups and downs, always been a friend, but uh, a di- directing legend, and I've already told you his credits, Marty Kallner. Welcome to the show. Welcome. I'm glad to have you here, man. So look, you know, I... I when I, I've, I've set this up, and when people say, so he starts out doing sports, directing sports for TV, network TV? Network TV, local TV. I was the Boston Celtics television director for three years, and from there I expanded and did NFL football and you know WFL football and NBA basketball and Produced Wimbledon and did rodeo and so you're so and you're a sports a, guy. Handball. How do you make the transformation from the sports world to directing the comedy specials and the music specials for HBO? How did that come about? It was difficult um, because I was stereotyped as a sports guy, and I really wanted to be an entertainment guy. And know? this is the problem for so many people getting well, looking looking at one of them. You get defined by what you do well first, and people say, okay, you do a good job, you're a sports guy. I always felt that if you could direct sports, you could direct anything. And what I tried to do when I, was, when I directed sports was to make it dramatic. I would not have that many cameras, but I would always try and tell a story. So I got a name. And because of that name, 
um, the color man on our, I mean, the broadcaster for the Boston Celtics was this guy, Dick Stockton, who's still doing sports. And he worked for this little tiny company freelance in New York called HBO. No, keep going. I'm just. Oh, I, mean, I forgot to, to time the show because I have to know when oh, to take a okay. break. Go ahead. And uh, he worked for uh, HBO. He told them about me. And then in 1975, I had two offers. I had a big offer from NBC Sports to come and be their guy, you know, to do the World Series, the Kentucky Derby, That's the a Olympics. Huge it was big. It was huge. The money was huge. And this little upstart pay cable service, HBO, which is offering me a third of the money, said, uh, if you come here, you can be responsible for the look of the network, the music of the network, you know, that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. What, what year is that? 1975. This is the very early days of it. I hate to, like, date myself, but I was only six. Say it with pride. As a matter of fact, my drummer, Joey Franco, is the guy who did that drum fill. Okay, oh, no and, and they do that, and it lights up the HBO. Really? That was Joey Franco well, playing the drums in the studio. That's actually. amazing. I'm sure I made him a lot of money. But, yeah, um, you did, actually. But uh, And they said, you can be responsible for the look, look of the network, do all our entertainment specials that we're going to do. And, you know, it was pretty much a chance to branch out and be with something new. They were very small. I like the idea of being a big fish in a small pond rather than being a pebble at NBC. I took it. Okay. This this is stuff that people need to know. Most people are afraid to take that chance. Most people fear. They go for the easy easy A, you know, the big money. You know, this is a guarantee. NBC, NBC. You know, I I mean, isn't that that Wide World of Sports? Isn't that NBC? That was ABC. ABC, but whatever. But that's that's a big network. Well, it was then. And you opt to take a chance. It was then because there was only three networks, you know. It wasn't like 200 stations. You know, I've always felt for some reason that, you know, going into the fear of the unknown is really scary. But if you can get through it, the rewards are enormous. And I've kind of set my whole career on. But it's still doing Marty. Things. Marty, it's still okay. I always say this on a show. I'm old, so I remember no signing petitions at movie theaters for no pay TV. And so, I mean, people were anti of the idea of cable when it came on the scene. I was one of the first people to get it, and it was the same few. Movies over and over and, and over. polka festivals. It was it, it was it was terrible. So you're looking terrible. at this at this 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 format, this platform, and you go, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm doing that. I mean, it wasn't even like ga- a guaranteed win. Can you curse on this show? Yes, you can. Yeah, okay. Um, I try to use it as seasoning rather than of the course. actual meal no, itself. Of course. Well, uh, yes, it was. Um, we were a bastard stepchild. We couldn't get nominated for Emmys. Everybody hated us. And I loved all that. You know, I was anti-establishment. And because I was setting the tone for what it was going to be, I would pound into the people at HBO as it grew that it wasn't good enough to be as good as the network. We had to be better than the network because people were paying for it. My first entertainment special happened in 1975. It was called An Evening with Robert Klein from Haverford College. It was the first special on HBO. I had no idea what I was doing. That's your first comedy special, too. My first special, my first anything outside of sports. 
I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that I had this intrinsic ability to create magic. So that's what I tried to do was to make it magical. When I brought it back in to my boss at HBO, he fired me because there was not enough close-ups. Wait a minute, he, he fired yeah, He fired me. <laughs> he said because there, there, wasn't, there wasn't, I'll tell you the truth, I was making like 35000 a year. There wasn't enough close-ups. Are you married? You I was married. I had a kid. Um, and uh, I was very young, 24 or 25. And you've got your wife, yeah, I want to take a shot with this HBO. I want to take thing. a shot. Yeah. She was cool with it. And same thing happened in the music videos when we get to that. But Which, of course, you were the first one and the, and the benchmark for my whole career in music videos. But... The fact of the matter is I did this. I, I brought it back in. He says, we're not going to air this. It's all wrong. And I said, you know, I, I think it's great. I said, it may not be traditionally enough close-ups or enough this, enough that. But I said, it's incredible. It's really good. And I went downstairs into the bowels of the Haverford College with a studio camera on somebody's shoulder that acted like a handheld and Nobody had ever seen that before. And Which has become a standard shot. Yeah, yeah. Now, any comedian, before he goes on stage, you see that following him to yeah, the stage yeah, yeah. thing. It's yeah, yeah, kind of the thing I started. But so I brought, it was on, it was December, it aired December 31st, 1975. I remember calling my wife from New York saying, you think I can get my old job, my job back at WBZ in Boston? Or it's making 14000 a year? Because I don't know what I'm going to do. And... She said, well, I don't know. She said, you know, you chose this. And there I was in, in New York in a hotel room all by myself on New Year's Eve in 1975 and when the show aired. Oh, what happened was is that this guy's boss, uh, Jerry Levin, said, we're airing this. I don't care what you say. It's in our program guide. Even if we only have 1,000 subscribers, we're going to air it. Make the story short, he had to air it. It aired the next day. John O'Connor in the New York Times wrote four columns on it with a wow. with a big thing that said program marked by innovative process with big bold uh, square around it and I don't know where HBO got Marty Colner but uh, they better sign him up for a long time. Nice. And I went in that day from being fired from a thirty five thousand dollar a year job to the next day having a three hundred thousand dollar a year job. The old boss was canned, and I was given a series called On Location and Standing Room Only, which was comedy and music, based on one review in the New York Times. And now you, in the 70s, launched, the I say you launched the careers, but it is HBO, and with you directing these things, so many great comedians' careers. Well, I did all these young comedian shows, okay? Where give, us, to, give us some names. Right, okay, where I used to sit out in the comedy clubs, mainly the comedy store, and look at these comedians who weren't known and pick who was going to be on my I own remember the young comedians. Shows. I mean, that's how I met I so many I had people like, let's see, Robin Williams, Jerry Seinfeld, Howie Mandel, uh, Gallagher, Andy Kaufman, uh, just to name a few. I named a few. To name a few, and the list was quite extensive and these guys a lot of them went on to have big careers and then they also defined the new face of comedy that's like a whole from the old 
I don't know Benny Benny Goodman or all these old old like type Myron of Myron Cone, Henny you know, Youngman, Henny Youngman. I was Henny Youngman. Yeah, I did his special too. Yeah, but, but uh, if the, now the new the new wave of comedy starts, and you're you're directing him. Well, you know, I, the next thing I did was uh, after those shows and those guys became successful, I directed George Carlin's first show, The Seven Words You Can't Put on Television: Shit, Piss, Funk, Cunt, Cocksucker, Motherfucker, Tits. I put him on TV. And it became really, really famous and launched my career in the comedy world, although Robert Klein got me started. Carlin and I became very good friends. He was, in fact, the best man at my wedding. And um, he, I, he was a friend of mine until he died. You did? How many, how many of his specials did I you do? I only did a couple of his specials, the first two. Because I left that world to go do music videos, which right. is a whole other story. But I, I do want to tell you about the first music special I did, which was Gladys Knight and Ray Charles at the Greek Theater. And I was scared to death because it was a, a big deal. And the idea was is that, you know, it was a Gladys Knight and the Pip show, but Ray Charles was a special guest, and we didn't tell the audience he was coming. And we set the whole show up that way, and Ray was saying... I don't like surprises and blah, blah, blah. He ended up loving it. To make the story short, um, because of that show, to this day, there's a noise ordinance and a curfew at the Greek theater. Nice. Because when he walked out, the crowd exploded. This was the height of his popularity. Wow. The crowd exploded, and we partied till 3 in the morning. And the show went on to win the first Ace Award. And, you know, it was another one of my milestones, of which there's been quite a few in the last 40 years. 40 years, dare I say. So now say it with pride, man. Say 40 with, years. 40 years. So so now you've crossed over from sports, you've gone to comedy, now you're music. And you did, I remember there was, you did a, a, a Diana Ross special? Well, that was, that was, the, that was the big watershed moment. Um, we did a Diana Ross special from Las Vegas, and I was determined that it was going to be the best music special of all time. And I was spending a lot of money to make it happen that way. This is all with HBO. This is all with HBO. And uh, my boss at the time was a guy named Michael Fuchs, and he was chasing me around Caesar's Palace like with a baseball bat, figuratively, because I was spending so much money. And I said, no, no, this is going to be incredible. You know, I mean, they told me she couldn't wear white, so I made everything white. I made the mic stand white, the microphone white. I uh, remember watching that special. I'm a heavy metal kid. I remember watching that special. It was. It came out so good, it sold for the highest amount of money ever in a... He has a syndicated uh, music special to, to, to Revco drugstores, believe it or not. And it put HBO on the map in the music world, okay? Because now the music community recognized HBO as a serious player. And it changed everything. It was, a, it was, it was one of the big moments in HBO history. So, and I remember well, but you did other music specials with them as well. You did a series, right? I did a series called On Location. I've done for them everybody from Britney Spears to the Rolling Stones to Justin Timberlake. To well, that's later, but back then, Garth wasn't there a Fleetwood? Did you do the Fleetwood Mac one? Fleetwood Mac. Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar. Cher. Cher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know his credits, but I know your credits pretty good, yeah, man. I did all those, and then, and then I, you know, I, I was really a, kind of a big star in New York, and I was like, living it up and going to studio 54 and living the life and it was crazy and but i really wasn't that comfortable in new york i really wanted to move to la because it was warm and you know and so were you still married uh no 
I mean, he's living the life in New York. I'm I saying, was, I don't think he was married anymore. I was single at this point. <laughs> but I came out, though. I moved out. Single with two sons. Single with two sons. Two sons. And I was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I got thrown out of the Beverly Hills Hotel because of Chevy Chase. And that's another story, <laughs> if you want to hear it. And... Uh, um, it was, it was a long story. We were doing a Chevy Chase special, and we got tanked up one night, and some bellman got knocked out, and <laughs> I gave him like 500 bucks, and he said, don't worry about it. The next day, I went to my room. There was a padlock on the door. They said, you're out of there. And I said, well, if I can't live in the Beverly Hills Hotel, I'm moving to L.A. So I <laughs> called up my boss again at HBO. I said, how about HBO West? He said, okay. So that's a- how HBO, HBO West, West didn't exist. Did not exist, Okay. We had a. Uh, t- t- they took these offices in Century uh, City, and I had an office and a secretary. I think I went there twice, but now HBO West was real. Now I'm laying in bed one day, and I already had my. I was now I'm seven figures. Okay, I'm making a fortune. I'm living in a big house, which you know you stayed there. That's and nice live house. there. For I lived. A while. I lived in more. That, that's how right. how close we are. But that was, you know, we'll get to that. But they'll take in a a headbanger like me and let me live in your house. That just I, speaks I love, volumes. I, lo- I loved you at first sight. with my wife and kid. Yeah, at, at first sight. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so I'm laying in bed one day, and they had this cable channel on here called the Z Channel. And this music video comes on. It was what year is this? This is 1983. Okay. What year is it, we is do it our, before MTV or MTV's already up right, and running? MTV was this I saw it on MTV it was just starting. Yeah, so that's gonna be eighty two, eighty three, right? Eighty two, eighty three. Yeah. And um Um I'm sitting there and this music video comes on. It was Betty Davis Eyes, Kim Carnes, directed by a guy named Russell Mulcahy, and it broke every rule. They were cross-cutting and jump-cutting and editing like I'd never seen before. And it was, like, so artistic and so entertaining. I said to my wife, I got to go do this. Your new wife. My new wife. <laughs> Aliza, right. who you're still Aliza. with. <laughs> I'm still with 35 years. But um, I said, I, I got to go do this. And to her credit, okay, remember, I'm living in this multimillion-dollar house. I got this job that's paying me in seven figures a year. I'm set for life. She says, go ahead. So I call HBO and I said, I'm done. They said, what? I said, I'm leaving. I'm going to go try and do music videos. People, this, I, I, I talk to the audience about things like this. this is, these are the chances in life you need to take for yourself. I mean, can I ask how old you were at this point? I was uh, about 35 years old, 35 36 years, years old. Well, a, a point where a lot of people are starting to say, uh, you know, I don't want to do what I'm doing anymore. I want to, I want to take a chance, but most people don't. Well, and you did. Well, my mother used to teach me all these cliches, which became my life. I hated them when she was talking to me. I love the one, me. The, one the one I'm going to tell you right now. a million now. times. She says, you know, a man who doesn't build castles in the air doesn't build them anywhere. Dream big. Think big. Don't be afraid. So I, I, you know, I used to get like pissed off. What are you filling me with all this crap for? But it ended up being the cornerstones of my whole career and my life. No, I've quoted that one. You know, I mean, because that's what it's all about. If you don't dream, and again, it was fear of the unknown. I've always been a guy that's sort of done research. Sur- I've done like surveillance, research, execution, and domination, and whatever that I chose to do. Surveillance, would, uh, research. Execution and, and dominations. Domination. In other words, I would look at this video and I'd go, 
oh, my God, how did they do that? And then I'd research and I'd say, oh, I know how they do that. And then I'd look again and I'd say, well, I think I, I can do that. And I'd keep studying and I'd say, I can do it better. And then I would strike. People write that down. Go okay. ahead. Get it tattooed on your forehead. So, you know, I left, no money. I met this guy who I'd worked with Fleetwood Mac, this lawyer named Mickey Shapiro. I remember Mickey. And uh, Shapiro and I formed this company and to do music videos and concerts. And we needed money to get started. And Norm Pattis gave us $50,000 and said, here, I believe in you guys. Norm Pattis is the owner-creator of Podcast One. And he started Westwood One, which was the premier radio syndication company back in the 70s. And uh, he left that. And and Norm, I'm just filling people in because I don't talk about Norm usually. And uh, he's a, a... He's an older gentleman like ourselves, and uh, and he just saw a new frontier with podcasting. Well, he's, he's always been on the cutting edge. Like and, yourself. And he was like, he wrote this check in about two minutes, and he said, go get him. I mean, I've never, ever stopped loving him for it because he's really the guy who, who gave us the cash to launch it. I talked about this in my last show about how there are few people out there willing to say yes most people are just they're looking for confirmation from others. They don't want to take a chance. They're quicker to say no than to say, yeah, let's do this. And Norm said yes. Correct. He was yeah. a yes guy. I yeah. pride myself on being a yes guy as well. But he was a yes guy. You certainly are. And I never, ever, ever, ever can thank him enough for that. Even though I'm on his network right now, I can never thank him enough. But, and again, this is cool too. He's always been that way. So... And we're both big Laker fans, and we both have we share some friends, and you know, he's number one Laker fan. He drives no a kidding. Tesla. I drive a Tesla. You know, so it, yeah, his company is is is, is named something to do with the uh, court side. Oh, the, yeah. court, the court side is his company. So, so um, so, so Norm gets comes up, and gives you the check. We, you, Mickey check. Shapiro. Okay, you got a company now. What we go to New York to meet with Atlantic Records and Amon Erdogan and Doug Morris. And Jason Blum. And I say to Amit... Now, is this a relationship that Mickey had? Mickey had a relationship with Doug. Doug, okay. So, but Amit, who I met, and he liked me, I said, I want to do music videos. He said, well, okay. He said, I got three bands. Pick one. First one was a band called Zebra. Who still exists sure. somewhere? Randy Jackson. I've just Randy Jackson. I just did an interview. He's has, he's working on a book actually. Yeah. Uh, the other one was an Australian band called In Excess. Mm, I don't know. They never did much, right? Never did yeah, much. Never did much. And the other one was this band they didn't quite know what to do with called uh, Twisted Sister. And for some reason, that spoke to me. Okay, the music spoke to me. I like the idea that. It could be music and comedy because of who the band was and, you know, after I'd met you. And I said, well, I want to do Twisted Sister. And then, you know, the first single, I don't know how we got there, was uh, We're Not Gonna Take It. Oh, I know exactly how we got there, Marty Colner. I know exactly how we got there. We, I, I, I'll I, let you tell that I'll story. Tell that we, I am dealing with a record company that cannot make up their minds. First of all, they, they really didn't want anything to do with us when we were initially signed. But we broke out of the U.K., and we were selling records hand over fist in the States, so they sort of had to deal with us. We recorded the Stay Hungry record, and their arguments, everybody has a, has a mind to do a different song. 
And I'm freaking out because the only song to lead with is We're Not Gonna Take It. Marty knows it and I know it's it. It's an anthem. Yes. And and so I to Marty this goes, day. Mar- Marty, uh, Marty, Marty saw a young man who was losing his mind at a number of occasions. I said, oh, great, oh man, Marty, great story, Marty. On a couple of occasions, uh, I've been completely like sort of, I, I don't say depressed, I don't get depressed, but just frustrated and, and just freaking out over what was going on with my record or whatever. And I remember Marty sticks me in his car, the Jaguar that Tawny Katane wound up doing a split on. Unfortunately, someone just offered me a lot of money for it, but I don't have it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and left a stain on the hood, I'm sure. And uh, Never washed it after that. He goes, get in the car. And he takes me to a, a, a cemetery. I took you to Veteran Avenue. Yep. And he All goes... Right, where there's maybe... 5,000 people buried. Yeah. And it goes for, like, miles. And he says, you see that? He says, he says, you're in there. You've got a problem. You're out here. You don't have any problems. He says, as long as you're on this side of the fence, you're doing okay. And it was just sort of a reality check. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm recording a record. I'm making videos. I'm having the opportunity in my life to be a rock star. And I'm sitting here, like, freaking out because we can't pick out the right single. So Marty goes, I got this. He sends a telegram. This is, right. <laughs> we're old. He sends a telegram <laughs> to the president of Atlantic Records, says, uh, working hard on the new hit single, video for the new hit single, we're not going to take it for Twisted Sisters. Stop. See you at the top of the charts. Stop. Or whatever. Marty Colner. The minute Doug Morris gets that, he comes out of the office and makes a pronouncement because basically he reads, money's already being spent. On this track, he comes out and says, I've decided we're going with, we're not going to take it. And to this day, is he still alive? <laughs> is, the dog, is, he still, is he still around? I don't know. I don't but know what the video is. To this day, he takes credit for picking, we're not going to take it okay. as the track. We don't care. We don't care, whatever it takes. But Marty, it was Marty's uh, nudging him on the other side. So, you know, D comes out and we start collaborating on this. And D writes this incredible script and... You know, we end up doing this video and it becomes an instant classic. All right, we got we got. I see. I, I'm, this is when I do radio. We got to back it up and and talk about this. I come out and meet Marty Colner. Marty Colner is a seven figure successful guy. He's won all these awards. He's done all this work, and I am a pipsqueak from New York. And a talented sits, one. Well, that's the, but. And he sits down. He says, "What do you think we should do for a video?" And I lay out the general idea for we're not going to take it and marty to his credit and people pay attention to this egoless that's one thing you don't see in this business people are too ego filled and uh, again people too quick to say no rather than say yes they don't want to use somebody else's idea marty said this kid knows has a great idea and he said d sit with me work with me we're going to do this together and allowed me to express myself creatively fearlessly on his part because people are so worried about somebody else like taking their glory taking their you know, and and you know nobody can take that from you if you're worth something if you've got it going on have the confidence in what you do to not be afraid of somebody else's idea and to embrace somebody else's idea and marty did and we worked on the script together I had the basic storyline idea, but we developed it together. And I was just talking to my son, Cody, who's a young director now. Very, he good, still, very good one, by the way. Thank you. He still laughs about this because Marty wanted me to knock out an elephant. <laughs> and he, I was going to bring that up. <laughs> and, and in 
Now, you all know that we're not going to take it storyline. <laughs> I don't. Somewhere in there, Marty had the idea that there would be an elephant, uh, and I would like like it was the eighties, like Mongo in Blazing Saddles, right. where he knocks out the 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 bull or whatever he knocks out the cow. The, the cow. He wanted me to knock out an elephant, and in the very early stages, somewhere it fit in, but. Marty would not let this elephant idea go. And now we have the entire, we're not going to take it, script. You know, the father and the family and everything. And somewhere there was, there's this, this note, and D knocks out an elephant. Forgot about this. And I remember the producer coming to me. What was her name? Uh, beautiful woman, uh, red hair. Uh, Molly Miles. Molly Miles. Comes to me and goes, uh, goes D, you got to talk to Marty about this elephant. It's going to cause us a fall. A fortune. We can't afford to have you knock out an elephant. And that never stopped me in the mind. <laughs> so, and, and, and this is, the, new, we're going into a new world with the money being spent on videos, too. This video is an expensive video. By those standards. By those, was, at that yeah, time. Yeah. And so I had to get Marty, I had to break the news that we had to lose the elephant. <laughs> and I remember Marty sadly taking that card off the Bolton board in the studio, pulling down. And I, think that, I think that's the last time I ever gave up one of my ideas <laughs> Okay, I, at that point, I figured that uh, money is no longer a reality, and uh, I'm going to get whatever I want. All right, well, the first, so the first video, now you go into the video world, the first video you do is Twisted Sisters, we're not going to take it, which explodes. Explodes. changes the game. Explodes. It goes into heavy rotation. It's on MTV every two minutes, and it had a narrative at the top, and nobody had ever done anything like this. You know, D had the brilliant idea of casting Mark, Mark Metcalf. Well, I went on later to have some conflict with, but <laughs> the conflict did produce a great, great, great performances. And he was fantastic, and my son was the kid in the video because he was the only one that could do Pete Townsend windmills. And that's I, Marty's voice saying, I want to rock. It's me. I said, <laughs> I want to rock. Okay? And then MTV would use that in promos. I think I'm more proud of that than anything I've ever done. And you can hear me, if you watch the video carefully, when he goes out of the window and you listen, you can hear me laughing on the track. Right. It's, it's actually the moment is when the wife throws a bucket of water on his head after he's falling out the window. And uh, you hear Marty laughing. I'm off. hysterical. I yes. can't control myself. That's how funny it was. So, you know, so this goes on TV. For the next 13 years that I did videos, I had no agent, no manager, just MTV, and I never stopped working. Okay, I did very iconic videos. Beside, we're not going to take it. You've already set all that up, but you know, say, no, say, say, well, say, you know, I did the very all the famous White Snake stuff with Still uh, the Night, Still of the Night yeah. with Ta- another lo- amazing story, which I can tell you sometime. They had completely given up on him. Aerosmith dude looks like Aerosmith a dude looks like a lady. And all the big Aerosmith videos with Alicia Silverstone and Liv Tyler. The very famous share on the battleship, you know, uh, Sam Kinison, Wild Thing. That was know. like bringing raw meat into a lion's cage. But Cher, looking the way she looked, wearing what she was wearing on a boat full of sailors. Oh, it was a, <laughs> created quite a controversy. I remember going on uh, uh, CBS Morning That was News. Turn Back Time, right? Yeah, yeah Turn Back Time. And uh, the Faith Daniels interviewed me. She said, Marty Collin, is there anything you wouldn't do in a video? I said, yeah, I wouldn't get up and dance up there with no clothes on. She <laughs> says, and the world's a better place for it. <laughs> so, you know, it became a self-perpetuating a success story. And 
it just went on and on and on and on. I, I had reached the point where I was getting tired of it. Because well, I we, we, because 80s, I always the videos in the 80s, I mean, that was a game changer for everything. And it needs, and, and I know the audience, this is a big deal. When MTV was music television. Unbelievable. Defi- defined yeah. by music. And defining pop culture. And, and just changing the game. Changing. I would say that you know when videos came out, it killed a lot of bands. When people found out what Joe Jackson looked like, they knew why he only had his shoes on the cover of his hit album. Billy Squire. Yeah, oh my, it, it made careers. It killed careers. Right. Um, and the audience is so fickle. One negative image could ruin a career. So I had to be careful that every single frame was great because the way people watch videos, well, they would eventually watch them all, but they wouldn't just stare at them. But they were on so much, they would get them all. So I had to make sure that every time you looked up, no matter where it was in the video, it was something entertaining. And a great Marty quote is, uh, if, it, if it doesn't look good, it's not going to be on the screen. Right. And to which band, many band members, not just my band, Plenty of bands, because bands expect when they do a video that they were just going to be guaranteed it's five guys, five you know equal five shots on the screen, and Marty's goes, buddy. it's not happening. Uh, my biggest example, and that was a tough or... thing for you to break to my band because um, I'm going, they want more shots, and Marty goes, I'm not. Put- if it doesn't look great, it's not going on the screen. So look good, or you're not going to be up there. You know, it was like with Aerosmith, which we used to call uh, Joe Perry and Steve Tyler in the Li Three. You know, the least interesting three. And they would, <laughs> I would get calls from Joey Kramer, the drummer, in the middle of the night saying, you know, I, I got to get on this more. And I said, when you perform as well as Steven Tyler, I'll put you on more. I said, this is my film. Okay, and I'm going to take, I, yes, I will get you in there for accent, but you're not going to dominate it. So get used to it. You know, he said, well, my kid says, I said, I don't care what your kid said. I remember Billy Duffy from the cult walking to the editing room, watching a video I did for them called Firewoman. You did Firewoman? Yes, I did. And he said, hey, Mike, not enough of me in there. And he says, you know, i got to get laid. I said, well, I'm not your pimp. And, you know, you're just standing there, and Ian's going nuts. And, you know, this is mine. Okay, I always felt that once I shot it, it was my film. And I was was determined that if I was going to fail – it was going to be because of me, not because of the ego of somebody who wanted to be on more. I didn't care if they liked me. I didn't care if I was politically correct. I knew that if the video worked, they'd be calling again. And they all worked, and they all shot up the well, charts. Let me ask you a question. In that, during that time period, so many of the video directors, I'll say so many, but a number of video directors went on to do films. You talked about Russell Mulcahy, uh, David Lynch, didn't he do director videos? Fincher. Fincher, Fincher. David Fincher yeah. directed videos. Uh, who's the guy who blows everything up? Uh, Michael Bay. Michael Bay. So, F. Gary Gray just did uh, Straight Outta Compton, you know. Right. So, so, is it is it a conscious decision on your part to stay go with what you know? Is it just is that making that change transformation to film just a tough one to make? Uh, you know why did you not go in that direction? Well, Cher asked film? me the same question, and she answered it for me. She says, "I know why you're not doing films. You can't afford to." And she was pretty much right at the point. I had a big family. Uh, I had. I was making films, in my opinion. They were little films, but they were still films. I had complete autonomy, which was unbelievable. Um, And, you know, I I just didn't want to make no money, spend a year and a half making a film and be disappointed because there's so many 
chefs in the mix that you know i you know i'm not the kind of guy who can tolerate that and i remember the i made some mistakes i was offered uh, ace ventura i didn't do it but there was no jim carrey uh oh, jim you know, wasn't attached uh, no i wasn't attached to it so i would read these i would get all these bad scripts i just couldn't bring myself to do it i was having so much fun and you know we were making these little movies all by ourselves and my ego didn't need it. So at, in answer to your question, I do want to make films. The last five years of my life, I want to make five films. Right. Because I know that I'll be very good at it and be very successful. But I want to make films because I don't have to. I won't, don't need the money. And I can, again, have my autonomy. Because that's the only way I'm good is if I have my autonomy. If it Once it leaves my hands, if I'm happy, the world's going to be happy. You know, if anybody else gets in and tries to mix up the creative and my vision is not realized, it's going to be a bomb. Yeah. That's how subtle the difference between a hit and non-hit is. I have to make sure that I love it. I grew up in the Midwest. I have Midwestern tastes. They have the best taste in the country. And I just, if, the way I am is that if I love it, people love it. That's a real talent of mine. Well, you were fortunate enough to, everywhere you went, you were going to New Frontiers. So you were able to walk in there, use your ideas, and once you proved that your ideas worked, you were given autonomy. In the, in the film industry, the only way you get that is with indie filmmaking, and there's no way to make any kind of money to support what had become your habit. Okay, my uh, lifestyle. Lifestyle, right. yeah. So at a certain point... I was a slave to the lifestyle. Yeah, but, you know... But I had autonomy. I mean, the only one... It didn't suck. You were person, doing something you loved. The only person I really collaborated with was you, because you were so smart, and you had such good ideas, and you were making my film better. So I'm going to definitely listen to somebody who's making my ideas and taking them to a higher level... It was fantastic. It was like having another set of eyes. And you, like me, didn't have an ego either. You just wanted to have the best possible product that you could. And so because it wasn't ego-based, we were able to make some great magic together. All right, well, let's just take a break right here. We'll come back. I want to talk to Marty about his live video concert filming, which is, which is an incredible body of work. Uh, his most, his most recent creation, Hard Knocks, one of the recent, has been on for a few years already. And then Ready Freddy, which is completely out of left field, which will probably make him more money than anything he's ever done in his career. So we'll take a break and be right back with more Snyder comments. Hey, this is D. Snyder for True Car. You know, finding clarity on car pricing can be very difficult. You can be paying thousands of dollars more than your neighbor for the very same car. That sucks. So how do you really know it's fair? Well, it's good to do your research when buying a car, but there's really only one place to get the most comprehensive car pricing information available. And the truth is, car prices can vary even within your area. So when you know the car you want and you're ready to buy, there's only one place to go. True Car and the True Car app. No headaches, no hassles, just the car you want at a price you can feel good about. And who doesn't want to feel good about the car they just bought, right? You can now go online to find the fair price on a new car via True Car. Now, with True Car, you can see what others in your area have paid for the same car you're looking for, which helps you determine a fair price. Then you get a guaranteed savings certificate from a True Car certified dealer. 
Your savings will be honored by a TrueCar certified dealer without the need to negotiate or renegotiate. TrueCar users save an average of $3,221 off MSRP. No hassles, no headaches. It's how car buying was always meant to be. Over 2 million cars have now been sold by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. And there are over 10,000 dealers in the True Car Certified Dealer Network out there. You work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. So, visit TrueCar.com or download the True Car app and start saving today. True Car, never overpay. We're back with Marty Crawler on Snyder Comments. We weren't gone very long. Yeah, we weren't gone long at all. There's only a couple commercials. Uh, and we'll, uh, we were talking about Marty's incredible career. But one thing he's known for in the business, and people don't know, and that's the thing, you know, having Marty on here, this is a person who's making the, 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 the medium, the, the inf- feeding you the information that you know, the videos, the concert events, the comedy events that are changing pop culture. They're, they're, you know these things. You've seen these things. We didn't even mention Pee Wee's big event, well, Pee yeah, Wee's Playhouse, right. which you created or co-created. No, I found him. He was this, a little guy at the Groundlings. I found him. Uh, I went with the head of HBO who fell asleep in the midnight show. And we walked out and he says, how was it? I said, we have to do it. And that's how it. That's how and you, it and and the special was Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yes, which went on to. Yeah, but they wound up doing a show, and you had to give them a little call, if I remember, and say, uh, "By the way, uh, that was my idea, the Pee Wee's Playhouse." Or was yes, it? Yes, <laughs> it became very lucrative. <laughs> once I, <laughs> once I bitched, I ended up doing his last special too, Pee Wee from Broadway. You know, thirty years after the first one. Well, in the business. When you do a lot, a huge live concert event, you want to get the best director, you get Marty Colner. I'm saying it, but he'll say it as well. That's the way he's just known. And if you've seen, if you saw the Stones in Rio de Janeiro performing for a million people, was it? Two million people? That was Marty's direction. If you saw Justin Timberlake in Madison Square Garden, that's Marty's direction. If you saw Garth Brooks in Central Park, Central Park half a million, half a people. million people, that's Marty Colner. We were having this discussion yesterday. Many people think that's my most magical show. This, this, there's, there's one person known in the industry who can handle that kind of thing, that kind of pressure, and, and, and call those shots. And just before I let you talk about them, I'll say with the Twisted Sister live concert video, which helped define us as a band uh, on MTV, that thing played like 18 times the first year, that thing was the, almost the cut they used was almost entirely your live call. I remember right. Marty called the concert live, camera, camera one, camera two, camera three, uh, whatever the, the calls are, and that pretty much was the show that we used with a couple of additions. Well, if you go to my website, martycolner.com, you'll see that there's a thing when I was doing this uh, SARS festival in Toronto where they actually taped me calling cameras. I didn't know it, but it's fascinating. Now, my ability... The SARS, to, that was, was that the Stones and ACDC? Yes. And okay, ACDC is where they tape my, tape my calling. That out. was a huge concert event. Huge, yeah. huge. And, and um, uh, so uh, this actually came out of sports. 
You edit that out? Yes, we will. This is, this is this podcast one. We, we don't edit anything out. You hear me going, oh, I got to close the window. There's noise coming in a hotel room. They'll close the window. It keeps going. So, uh, you know, my, my ability to direct sports led to my ability to direct live. Now, Which you said in the very beginning of this interview that you felt that there was a correlation. It's entertainment. It was a, it, you felt I've directed live sports, sports is entertainment. It's a concert. It's, it, it's, it, it's, it's entertainment. Same you know, I had a, I had a, I had a program director when I first started in Cincinnati, Ohio, who told me, give the people what they want to see when they want to see it. And you'll be very successful. So I kind of lived like that. And, you know, directing live and directing videos are two different animals. Uh, directing live is the hardest thing you can ever think about doing. The preparation takes time. Like, I'm, I mean, I did The Stones in New York for HBO or Justin Timberlake or Britney. I wouldn't leave my hotel room because I'd be planning and studying. So I planned every single shot. So I was so prepared that when I went in there, everybody had a script. Everybody knew what was coming. And... You know, that's part of the key, you know, and I want to hit all the beats, you know. So I would study these these artists and travel with them and stalk them and learn and learn and learn until yeah, until I felt like I was up on stage with them. And I could knew what they were going to do. I could anticipate what they were going to do. And because I had such a strong plan, I could jump off the plan and improv if I had to if something happened that wasn't planned and then jump right back into it. And what happened was I had left... I had left doing it to do videos, even though I was good at it, because you know I get bored and move on. And then one day, uh, this is like nineteen in the nineties, when I was getting like, I was really kind of pissed off at MTV over censorship issue and my crazy video. Yeah, Marty was there with me in Washington when, by the thirty years, by the way, on the nineteenth of September. Really? Uh, yeah, the PMRC hearings, and Marty and Elisa were there by my side, mm. right behind me, I should say. Right. Uh, at that Frank event. Zappa, John well, Denver. Yeah, since your video and was those, being played and those over and over. Stupid assholes. Yeah. Okay. This is where I learned about Congress. We're saying that our video was the most violent video of all time. There was no blood. Nobody got killed, and it was based on Roadrunner cartoons. So, I mean, they were just like... It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous, okay? And then I realized how much trouble this country really is in. I always thought that, you know, to be as when I grew up a senator or a congressman, you had to be Phi Beta Kappa, and I couldn't believe how stupid these people were. So, Paula Hawkins. Oh, that was my big realization. These aren't people who are better than us. Right. They're, they're, they're not smarter. They're not better. They're, right. And their motivations are not with our best interests at heart. Not even close. They've got their constituency. They've got their own, you know, their own agenda. And we have to just deal with it. It doesn't matter who's president. It's just not going to work. So by the 90s, the censorship on MTV had just gotten to you? Well, it, if I, you know, I used to be able to get away with more than anybody. Okay, I always pushed the envelope, and my what I always did was put more in, so I knew they made me take some out, and I'd still have a lot left. Okay, and I remember I did this my video. Frank calls those Velcro this, dogs. I did this video for the Scorpions called Big City Nights, and they wrote me and they said too many shots of girls in bikinis. I said okay, and then I put another fifty shots in a girls in bikinis, and said I changed it, and they said okay. <laughs> Nice. No, so I would have I have more censorship issues with MTV than anybody. I usually got away with it, but this one particular shot really pissed me off. It was in video crazy for Aerosmith, and it's it, one shot set up a bunch of stuff. They made me take it out, and I said, "I'm done with this." And at the same time, 
I got a call from HBO, from my old boss, who did not talk to me for 10 years for leaving. They were very upset when I left. And he said, look, I got a problem with an artist I'm doing in Australia. Would you consider doing it? I said, who's the artist? He said, Madonna. Well, at this time, Madonna was Madonna. And it was it was really a big deal. So I went back to started doing stuff for HBO, and then I ended up doing Madonna and Bette Midler and Garth and Britney and NSYNC and Justin and Mark Anthony and blah, blah, blah. It goes on and goes Always on. Always huge, on. hugely successful. Huge. And then uh, at the same time, I created a series for HBO that I had really trouble getting off the ground called Hard Knocks, which is one of the most popular shows on television today. It's been on since 2001. You know, I can hear sports fans listening, screaming, thank you, Marty. I get it it's every day. Show. I just came back from training camp. I was yeah. down with Houston. And I remember telling HBO I had the NFL and telling NFL I had HBO. I didn't have any, anybody. And here I was, this Jewish hippie, going out to meet the owners in Palm Springs, trying to convince them that this music video guy had an idea that was going to help their game. Somehow, one guy, a guy named Brian Billick from the Baltimore Ravens, said, I'll do that. Said yes. He said Again, yes. Everybody's so quick to say no, few will say yes. He was a PR guy. Yeah. He understood it. He said yes. It was the Baltimore Ravens the year before they won the Super Bowl, and we took off. Then they took us off for three years, and I went on and jumped on people's desks and went completely crazy and nuts and got it back on. Now NFL, the biggest problem always with hard knocks is how are you going to get a team to do it because of the privacy issues. Right. Now the show has become so big. They're fighting they, to be on, I bet you. Well, it's, it, it, not exactly, but the NFL has made a rule. Okay, it's called the Hard Knocks Rule, where they can force teams to do it. They wow. citing it's so good for the citing saying that the value of this show in terms of its promotion and popularity outweighs any concerns of security for any coach. So that's where that happened. I think I'm more proud of that than almost anything. That uh, you know, as far as my legacy is concerned, I mean, I have a big one, but that's. That's really something that was outside the box. and Well, I'm going to be looking for the movies. We have we, we to wrap the show up, but I'm going to be looking for films. You, now you've committed. You didn't tell me that, and I think that you should do some movies. Oh, I will. I'm going to. But I'm, a, I'm, but I'm going to do it when I don't have to do it, and I can do it on my own terms, and I promise you I will give you hits. Okay, give me hits. Oh, good. Well, I got some. I got some script ideas. Actually, well, you know, right. I write. You know. Oh, I listen. <laughs> you're prolific. <laughs> I got. Well, I had some good inspiration when, early wouldn't on. Wouldn't it be interesting if our first video and our first film was together? Uh, well, I, I got one. I think that you'll uh, love. You know, All right, uh, Marty Colner. Don't thanks. forget, ready, Freddie. Oh, ready, people. I talked about ready, Freddie earlier, but I'll, and I'll talk. Don't get, get your ready, Freddie. I talked about it at the opening of the show. Get your ready, Freddie. I can't speak about this product. Highly enough. I've told everybody here at work, and they're going, i got to get one of those. i got to get one of those. ReadyFreddy.com. It's an emergency preparedness kit. It's been judged by Forbes magazine and the Wall Street Journal as the best one ever designed. Um, nothing ever needs batteries, and everybody needs one. Absolutely. And uh, MartyCallner.com to check out all that Marty's doing. And uh, or just, you know, IMDB. And he shot another special this weekend with uh, Whitney Cummings. Oh, you did that? I saw her comedy special, the other one. She's brilliant. I did that one called I Love You. Yes. And this one's called I'm Your Girlfriend. 
And she is brilliant, and I love her, and she stalked me out, and she knew all the shots in Twisted Sister. She knew it was amazing. So, um, you know, and you know, and another comedy special I'm quite proud of is the Chris Rock one. It was shot in three different countries. Oh, that was a brilliant one. But the editing, again, was outside the box. We took three shows, one from africa one from australia and one from new york and edited them into one performance seamlessly went from one show to the other and showed showed the the community of how comedy crosses all international racial boundaries all boundaries you got that it was brilliant won the emmy for editing obviously because it was so well edited but uh Okay, I know we're out of time, so I'm going to wrap up, but this was really fun, and Thanks, I bro. love seeing you so much, because I love you so much. Well, likewise. I'll see, you, uh, I'll see you at the house. I'll see you in Malibu. I'll see you in, Mal- I'll see you in the boat. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll see you all next week on Snyder Comments. Stay tuned for the latest AP News headlines from Podcast One, right after this. When shopping for car insurance, consider this. GEICO has been saving people money on car insurance for over 75 years. So if you're serious about savings, it's simple. Go to GEICO.com. After 75 years, they know how to save you money. AP Update. I'm Sandy Kozell. Polls are opening across New Hampshire for the nation's first presidential primary. And that means it's time for Granite State undecided voters to make a choice, as we hear from the AP's Jerry Bodlander. Voters here in New Hampshire are known for waiting until the last minute before deciding who they're pulling the lever for or changing their minds about who they're supporting. Gloria Fields is choosing between Donald Trump and Jeb Bush. Trump because of his business ability. Bush because of what he has done in Florida. Field says she may not decide who she's supporting until she's in the voting booth. All this uncertainty makes polling more difficult, and on top of that, independent voters can vote in either the Republican or Democratic primary. Jerry Bodlander, Manchester, New Hampshire. Polls show Clinton trailing Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. She started her day at 7 a.m. at a Manchester polling location. AP Update, I'm Sandy Kozell.